The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, disturbing political ideas, and disturbing sexual references. Okay, Venus? Okay, Steve. Right. Let's go. Sunday, the 25th of August, 2019. In this episode, we hear true facts about Donald Trump. Donald Trump can outwork anyone. We hear more true facts, facts that are being hidden by the Mueller investigation. The conspiracy theory is that it's a setup by the FBI or CIA. Or the British, or the Italians, or all of them working together. And I'll tell you all about my encounter with the Sex Walrus. That's right, the Sex Walrus. This is the 9pm Authoritarian Tentacles. No, no, it is, really. I'd like to make a confession, although this uh, really isn't a crime as such, uh, at least no more than uh, this podcast is uh, an ongoing crime and a serious one as that. And, and this information is already public, but let me just say, I am old enough to have heard these words live on television. That's one small step for man. And they were the wrong words, as we all know now. But that is, of course, uh, the first steps on to moon. And this is where I also have another confession, is that I had all this prepped up and ready to go, oh, well, in the first half of July, because that event happened on the 21st of July, uh, Australian time, 20th in the United States, uh, because they're just slow there. And I've been distracted between then and now, both for the uh, the wonderful adventures of Health Patrol and some busyness of my own. I won't go into that now. It's all been on the Twitters. But I want to reflect upon that because, uh, yeah, those words were said 50 years ago plus a few weeks. And for those of us who, who were alive at that time, it it really was. I mean, the space age, the 60s were the space age. And uh, since I was a relatively bright male child of, child of that uh, decade, my thoughts were dominated by those events. And the images and themes of space exploration were around us constantly. Uh, those words by Neil Armstrong stepping onto the surface of the moon, they were the very pinnacle of all that, or perhaps I should say the, the apogee. I was mesmerised, even though half of the time my nine-year-old self couldn't figure out what was going on. I had been following the story as it unfolded in the newspapers, and I read every word, I memorised every diagram, and it was front-page news every day in those last few days as Apollo 11 went to the moon. There were diagrams, there were photos, there were, you know, the whole thing. But to be perfectly honest, the TV images were crap. Really crap. And, and of course, the reason they were crap was the circuitous, uh, circuitous, the long journey 
they took. From the Apollo mission's slow-scan TV cameras, uh, the signal was compressed from our solar breakfast time and bounced from the moon uh, to the park's radiothermal telescope in uh, rural New South Wales and or Tidbin Miller, you know, a bit of mythology uh, in there. Somehow it went all the way to NASA Mission Control in Houston, and then they mixed in the audio of of the, the Mission Control guys, and then it had to come back to Australia to the TV stations and finally out through their normal broadcast chain. It's actually a miracle that those pictures arrived at all, and the film The Dish portrays that, of course, along with all of the historical inaccuracies in that film. But... It, it did show how technically difficult it was. If you look it up, New Zealand did not have a satellite ground station at that point. So to show the moon landing in New Zealand, there was a Royal New Zealand Air Force Canberra jet bomber waiting uh, in Sydney at Richmond Air Force Base. And once uh, it had happened, the tapes were rushed out to the airport and this, this fast jet bomber, at least for the period, flew uh, across to Wellington, I think, maybe Auckland, but I think Wellington, uh, to deliver the tapes uh, for them to be shown on New Zealand television. Historians and, and even popular culture uh, tell us that the, the world stopped to watch these blurry images, and we all remember where we were. And, you know, for me at least, that's true. The the actual first steps were scheduled to happen in primetime TV in the United States. So that first step was uh, broadcast early afternoon Australian time. And we got a day off school to watch it. Now, I was at my Ponga Primary School south of Adelaide. And the school only had one television. Because televisions were... People don't realise how expensive televisions were back in the day. And when we had to watch something on TV, that trolley was wheeled from classroom to classroom as required. Well, that wasn't going to work for the entire school, was it? So my family watched the moonwalk from the home of our friends, the Lorenzetti family, because they had a, a better TV than us. And I remember sitting on the carpeted floor in front of the TV. The TV had a wooden cabinet because it was the 1960s. Um, and when I talked about this on Twitter the other day in the lead up to the, the landing itself, and I'd originally planned to, as I say, do quite a bit of this in the podcast, so many people of you know my age plus or minus a bit remember that same thing, that school, whether even high schools would have only had one television, and, and they remember either all being gathered into the school assembly hall and crowding around you know, what was a giant television for the period could have been, you know, 19-inch or even 21-inch, good heavens. Uh, or they went to friends' place uh, and so on. Now, I remember being a bit confused at the time. I wanted it to be exciting. I knew it was important, but it it really was this high-contrast blur and everything happened really, really slowly. I did say that the, the space... Age dominated my childhood. It did in in a lot of ways. Now, I kind of knew that I had a strong interest in space, but when I blogged about this uh, maybe 10 years ago, I can't remember exactly when, uh, someone I was at school with, a guy called Michael Mignelli, Mignelli, made the comment on my blog that at school I was always drawing spaceships. And he says, I don't 
remember this at all. He says they were also very neat and to scale. And for someone my age at the time, it was amazing. And, and other kids were convinced that later in life, I'd probably finish up in America working on some space mission. Well, yeah, nah. I mean, he's right. I was fascinated, perhaps even obsessed. I mean, I could identify by sight all of the manned space vehicles, US and Soviet. I still can. I can talk you through many of the mission profiles. I could explain escape towers and transferred orbits and ablative heating shielding. Ablative heating. I'm coming down with a cold. I'm so, so, so tired. Anyway, I, I knew all that. Uh, by the time I was eight years old. I mean, not the mathematics of the orbits, obviously, but I named the farm's cats after spacecraft. My favourite cats were named after Soviet space vehicles because they just look so much cooler and, quite frankly, still do. Um, and and whenever I played the, the kind of old sheds or or vehicles or whatever uh, in which I played, they had to be reimagined as spacecraft, which always really annoyed other kids. Uh, down at Victor Harbour, south of Adelaide, there there was an antique steam locomotive uh, in the playground. Now, back in those days, you could climb all over it. These days, it's really falling apart, and they've just stuck it by behind a fence, and it's one of the saddest things imaginable. Don't, if you're interested in, in trains, just simply don't bother going there. Um, but I wanted it to be a spaceship. And then I eventually realised, this is a bit of a, a side thing, but I, I realised that the, the control room, if you like, of the steam locomotive behind the boiler in front of the tender carrying the coal and water, I realised, hang on, the control room's in the middle. So that's like a submarine. And, oh, it must have been so annoying. Today, of course... Space is just a, a place where you stash satellites. And, and NASA made it boring for a period. I mean, so, so safe. Uh, and rightly so in, in the response to uh, some terrible accidents. Uh, it, it really didn't become a thing. So that was the real space age. But as far as I'm concerned, there was um, an even realer space age. And... Uh, Excuse me while I grab some water. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's not too flash, is it? The real, real space age, I think, happened inside my head uh, in the 1960s. Because of this interest in space, in your breakfast cereal boxes, there were things called premiums, which were little toys or something. And I remember for a period in, in Kellogg's breakfast cereal, they had a whole series of reasonably detailed little models of the Apollo spacecraft, of speculative space, age, uh, space station designs, uh, and even... The Thunderbirds vehicles, hurrah, the Captain Scarlet vehicles, and so on. And I think like a lot of kids, the, the kind of real, in quotes, US and Soviet space programs blurred with the Jerry Anderson, you know, animated and papa papa puppetomated animatronic, what are they called? Um, uh, uh, super marionation, that's right. Um, they kind of created this glorious set of unfolding possibilities. 
Uh, my favourite breakfast cereal toy of all was another Kellogg's thing. It was a Molab. Now, this was based on, you'll have to look this up, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, which was this kind of pressurised vehicle for cruising around on the surface of the moon. Uh, they built a mock, General Motors built a mock-up of this thing. It's worth looking, uh, uh, looking up. It never happened because the follow-on to the Apollo program, which would have landed uh, a lot more exploratory vehicles on the moon, uh, got killed during the 1970s for a whole lot of economic reasons. I mean, uh, well, the United States was also spending money on the Vietnam War and there was the international petrol crisis. uh, There was a global recession anyway. Uh, but that really was my favourite, favourite toy. I loved the Jerry Anderson stuff, but Thunderbirds, yeah, cool. Stingray was better than Thunderbirds, I reckon. Uh, but one of my favourites of all was Fireball XL5 because it began showing this spacecraft taking off by rolling down a track under rocket power, lifting up at the end, and it just went off. That's the opening theme. And then at the end of every episode, there was this really corny song. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball XL5. Way out in space together, conquers of the sky. My heart would be a fireball. Every time I gazed into your starry eyes We'd take the path to Jupiter and maybe very soon We'd cruise along the Milky Way and land upon the moon To a wonderland of stardust we'll zoom our way to Mars My heart would be a fireball yeah, and like all Jerry and Sylvia Anderson shows, Fireball XL5 had all of that really long, slow sequences of stock footage which were played every episode so you know in each half hour show there was probably only about 10 minutes of actual new action but i loved it i loved it now of course we're in a second space age now and that's great but it's also a shame because so much depends on elon musk because he really is a cunt hello i'm stilgarian welcome to the edict
What is it with people who talk constantly? Are they somehow wrong in the head? Are they afraid that if they can't hear the sound of their own voice, they'll cease to exist? Are there so many voices in there that it simply overflows? How do they even breathe? Are they, are they kind of like bagpipes or something? Anyway, Trump is obviously one of those people. I, I, I think you would agree. He can't leave a topic alone. He'll, he'll just keep going on and on about the same thing in response to a question. He seems to be uh, filling, filling a gap. I'm also intrigued, as Aaron Rupert, uh, journalist for Vox, found some remarkable um, faux pas. Here's, here's a, a, a little grab from a speech. Uh, at a uh, kidney research foundation or some such thing. You've worked so hard on these things. You've worked so hard on the kidney. Very special. The kidney has a very special place in the heart. Yes, the kidney has a very special place in the heart. I'd like to see a diagram of that. There was also uh, last month a quote from the president, quote, to me, free speech is not when you see something good and then you purposely write bad. To me, that's very dangerous speech and you become angry at it. But that's not free speech. No, free speech is, is only when you write good things uh, about the president. And uh, Look, I love how his, uh, his fans, his supporters are absorbing all this sort of thing too. Uh, this is a grab. This is amazing. This is a reporter, Emma Vigeland, from uh, a news site called The Young Turks. I, I, I don't know exactly where this happened, but she ran into a Trump supporter and decided to explore what this woman thought. Do you think Joe Biden is a socialist? Yes. How would you define socialism? I define socialism when you bring down your own country, your own race, because he's not black. And what does that mean? Bringing him down to black people? Is that what you're saying? No. He's saying that the white people, he doesn't look at himself in the mirror? No, I said away for That's what I look at. Hey, you talk about the white people? And look at you. Oh, he actually... You know I don't like him? I'll tell you exactly why I don't like him. He's got a big ego. He thinks he's better than God. You're, uh, Trump, Trump said he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it. No, I don't think so. He did say that. No, he didn't. No. It's on tape. No, I don't believe it. No, that's fake. I swear to God, you can watch it. Fake news, fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Okay. Do you want me to watch the video? They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Any of the Democrats, do any of them appeal to you? Liars. All liars. That Pinocchio keeps growing. Okay. And then you yourself won't have a country. You yourself won't have a country. Keep believing all these liars. And you yourself will be out of your country. Socialism doesn't work wherever it goes. Why is Joe Biden a socialist? Why is Joe Biden a socialist? He, because it's all about the money. I mean, but socialism is about... You know, the thing is that Joe Biden is all about the money. It's all about the power, the money. That's why. Trump's a billionaire. Yes, and so is Joe Biden.
Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Trump went bankrupt four times. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. And that's business. But he did. How many people, okay, you go bankrupt. How many people do not, don't start all over again after a bankruptcy? Uh, how many? How many? I, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that again um, because it is just a, a fascinating version of the truth. But, but but Trump has people fooled, doesn't he? Um, and, and what I love is that folks at home, folks in America, think he's doing so, so well. But uh, as uh, a few bits here, this is from the Rational Security Podcast, one of my favourites out, uh, out of the United States. And I can never remember who the speakers are. I haven't learned their voices yet. But just recently, uh, well, a few weeks ago now, they were, they were talking about how the United States is actually burning its bridges when it comes to, to international cooperation. Eventually, there will be a crisis in which people don't rally to the side of the US or think very hard about it. But I also think we're paying it in a, a gazillion paper cuts along the way. Which is true. I mean, North Korea is an example of this. Trump thinks he's got everything, everything under control. But, I mean, he doesn't. The North Koreans are giving up nothing in all of this and are getting so much in return. There's going to come a point where it's going to become painfully obvious to everyone, as it, I think is, frankly, to many people in the administration, that this country is never going to give up its nuclear weapons the way the president has said. And at some point, it, he's just going to be engaging in theatrics and it's going to look like he's being played. Well, it already looks like well, he's it already being played. It might become more obvious to right? people. You know, I, I think the administration is in the process of defining expectations down the same way they did with the Bahrain Middle East Peace Workshop. Yeah. So, you know, now if we can just keep them to building from it's building more bombs, it's a, it's a freeze, that's a win. And the fact that John Bolton from Mongolia decided to tweet uh, his denial of the news reports to that effect, tell me just what an, a gap there is between the National Security Advisor and the president on this issue. And, and it also reveals, I think, what it means to have such a lack of process in national security decision making. But, you know, when that crisis comes... Ivanka will step in. She'll take care of it. Absolutely true, right? Oh, dear. Also in the gap since the, the last episode of this podcast, uh, the Mueller investigation, <laughs> wow, that all came out. It was exploring, of course, the links between the Trump campaign in the lead-up to the 2016 election. Good heavens, doesn't time fly? And, of course, one of the figures in that was Australia's greatest son, Alexander Downer, uh, who was uh, Australia's High Commissioner in the UK at the time. That's what we call ambassadors, uh, if it's to another Commonwealth country. Here is a lovely bit about some of the beliefs held by by people on Trump's side, and in particular by uh, George Papadopoulos, who was the guy who met with Alexander Downer in London uh, and revealed too much over drinks, or I think it might have been just one drink. 
Now that uh, we are in this mode of investigating the investigators uh, and the the Attorney General Barr review that's going on, a lot of attention among the sort of Trump-Russia skeptics, if we want to use that term politely, has focused on Joseph Mifsud and this counter-narrative has taken hold that he was clearly either working for the FBI or the CIA or British intelligence or possibly Italian intelligence and that this meeting with Papadopoulos was a setup meant to create the pretext for the FBI to investigate uh, Donald Trump and thereby launch onto the effort to so, derail his and candidacy. And just as a point of clarification, because I, it's hard to keep track. It's a setup. The, the conspiracy theory is that it's a setup by the FBI or CIA. Or the British or the Italians or all of them working together. And, and the whole purpose of this is to take down Donald Trump Correct. eventually when he gets elected president. Or before. And just so that you don't okay. breathe easy, the Attorney General of the United States believes this. Well, he believes there was spying on the campaign. and He just believes we should be looking into it, Ben. And there's just nothing wrong with spying. Spying could be legal. It's just spying. I'm it's spying on you English right now. It's a good English word, as we've said many times on the podcast. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I'm in love with America right now. I really, I really am. Maybe it's because I'm tired. Maybe it's because I'm coming down with a cold. Maybe, maybe it's because Nick Fryer isn't here on this episode, much as I wanted him to be, because uh, he's busy. He has, you know, a family and a, and a job and all these other lame excuses. But uh, maybe that's why I'm vulnerable. Maybe, um, it's a, certainly why this isn't as much fun as many episodes of the podcast. I will grant you, but. Oh, yeah. I am so in love with America. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Most episodes of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. I have one, two, three very quick ones. Uh, this time. The first comes via uh, the ABC's North America correspondent, James Glenday, uh, who asks, or actually says, when future generations ask why America went into decline, they need look no further than this. And I refer you, uh, links as always on the website, to a photograph of the Jimmy Dean pancakes and sausage on a stick. Yes, that's correct. It is a sausage covered in batter, deep fried, and covered in a pancake. Or maybe it's then deep fried. It's a chocolate chip pancake, of course, uh, on a stick. Elephant stamp of approval to Jimmy Dean, the company who developed that. Number two goes to uh, what someone claims is the greatest Amazon one-star review of all time. Let the haiku-like genius roll over you, says this person. This product gets one star because never received it. Don't think I ordered it. One star. One elephant stamp for that person. And finally, an elephant stamp of approval in the category of uh, excellence, whatever it is, uh, to Apple for the Apple card. News came out this week that Apple has warned people that its credit card doesn't like leather or denim or other cards. Uh, this is written by my uh, ZDNet editor, Chris Duckett. 
He noted uh, there was a support note at the Apple website. Now, the Apple card, like, it's a credit card, right? It's it's made of titanium, though, because <laughs> why the fuck not? And, of course, it's backed by the vampire squid itself, Goldman Sachs. But the thing is about this titanium card, it is afraid of most things people use to carry ID in and, and the coinage. Like, it can't be in a wallet. Like, you can't have it in contact with leather because it'll discolor denim no good you need to keep it away from hard surfaces to avoid scratching it uh you can't clean it with a household cleaner or compressed air or aerosols or any solvents or ammonia or anything abrasive just as an aside how many of you clean your credit cards i mean do is that a thing is that a thing people do Clean their credit cards. I don't know. But if you wish to clean your Apple card, you must moisten a soft microfiber cloth with isopropyl alcohol and gently wipe the card. Keep it away from loose change keys and other credit cards, though, because, you know, where would you... Oh, I'm getting too old for this shit. Now, this podcast is made possible by you, the generous listeners, through your subscriptions and one-off contributions. And indeed, it's made possible for you because some of you paid to have my MacBook Pro repaired. And what's even more more remarkable, like it's it screen died, uh, and it did get recalled under it's a mid-2015 model, which you all paid for. You bought me four years ago. Mid-2015 MacBook Pro, considered by many to be one of the best. Still going strong. Uh, however, there was a recall program because apparently the batteries, fires, explosions, that sort of thing. So that was going to be replaced. Uh, but its screen did, did uh, fuck up just before that. So uh, originally that was quoted to cost about $970 because that top clamshell is the screen and the camera and some other bits and pieces. Apple decided to replace that free of charge as well, which was lovely. And everybody... Um, who'd contributed to the repairs, told me to keep the money. So thank you very much to these people. Uh, Chris Rockle, Craig Harvey, Daniel O'Connor, DK, Jason Langenauer, who's uh, gave $30.50 hogs. You remember that, don't you? It was only a few weeks ago. The, 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 the anti, no, the pro-gun guy talking about he had to have an assault rifle because what happens when 30 to 50 hogs come into his backyard where his kids are playing? So 30, 50 hogs. You, you, you do remember this, right, don't you? It was, it was a big thing for about 18 hours. Anyway, that's Jason Langadout. Garth Kidd, Carl Oscar, Katrina Zetti, Zetti. Oh, Katrina, I've forgotten how to pronounce your name. Kimberly Heitman, who gave $14.88, so now I'm listed as a Nazi. Mark Newton, Matthew McBride, Michael Harris, who noted the Blue Lagoon. If you've been following me on Twitter, you'll know what that means. Paul McElwee. Uh, Paul McElwee actually said give half the money to the snarky platypus for his um, kind of GoFundMe. So that did actually happen too. Uh, Peter Wickens uh, gave $36.32 for reason. Oh, that was because 
1488 meant it was a really weird total, so he gave $36.32 to bring it back to a round number. Thank you, Peter Wickens. Roselle Snark, Richard Stevens, Susan Island, Tim Holland, Tristan Rayner, Wade Baumer, and finally, Let's Get Wild. Wild at wild, W-Y-L-D, wild.wildtv.tv. Wild at wild.tv, who streams shit on Twitch. and I don't know, it's streaming, these streamers, I don't know. Uh, plus, four people who chose to remain anonymous. Thank you. To you all, I have a not quite as smeared and filthy screen and all the pixels work on my computer. If you too, if you too would like to continue making me possible, in fact, yes, you make me possible. I am created by your collective willpower. Go to stillgarian.com slash tip. That's stillgarian.com slash tip. Or if you would like to make a regular contribution, you can subscribe. You get extra benefits if you subscribe. And that's at skank.com.au slash subscribe. That's skank.com.au slash subscribe. Do it now. I've been having heaps of weird, vivid dreams lately. In one of them, there was a woman's news and lifestyle website. I don't know how I interacted with that, and I forget its name. But I remember the strap line of the website was policy periods shopping. I think that could be a website, ladies, don't you? Uh, In another dream... I dreamt that on the Channel 10 program, The Project, uh, they had a segment comparing methods of shaving or waxing your balls. So there's one for the gentleman. I don't don't know how they could do that at 6.30pm, but there you go. Another recent uh, dream featured the snarky platypus. Uh, So let me tell you about that. Um, It began... Well, this sequence of the dream began with me making a lame joke about Olympic mascots because aren't the mascots for the Olympic Games always just uniformly rubbish? And when I mentioned that, the snarky platypus apparently went very quiet for a while. And then he said, my dad died at the Sochi Winter Olympics. Now, I made the joke about the Olympic mascots. I can't remember what the joke was. Because apparently I'd been reading in the dream a news story about the Olympic mascots. And the Sochi ones really, you know, in in a bad bunch, they are some of the worst. Anyway, in that awkward silence, after he reminded me that his dad had died at the Sochi Winter, uh, Winter Olympics, I started reading the article properly. And it turns out that it had been written by the Snarky Platypus. And it was about how the Olympic mascots were such an inspiration to generations of kiddies and that his father dying at the Sochi Olympics had, in a roundabout way that I don't quite remember, inspired him to follow his career in engineering. So I said, quietly, all right, this is a, a very good article, mate, sorry. And then I woke up. Um, now, there's two important notes here. Snarky Platypus's father is actually alive and well and shitposting on Twitter. And two, neither Snarky Platypus nor his father are engineers. Well, not quite true because uh, his dad did actually uh, study aeronautical engineering, I believe. He never practised as an engineer. So there's that dream. Um, 
Now, shall I tell you about my dream involving a sex walrus? As you think about that, um, uh, a sex walrus, um, I think the concept is obvious. It's a walrus that, at least for the purposes of the scenario in question, is involved with or used for or pertains to sex in some way. I thought that would have been an obvious concept. So do you want to... No, no, okay, I'm I'm getting the feeling, even as I'm recording this, I'm getting the feeling that that's a no. All I will say then is that the sex walrus was helping me investigate activities at a sex on-premises venue, which was actually about having sex with alien species. Um, okay, this is complicated. But uh, this must have been in the week leading up to the moon landing because... I thought about this. Um, would you have sex with an alien species? I mean, uh, Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise, played by the the, the greatest actor in, in living memory, uh, William Shatner, he had pretty much sex with any creature that was more than 48% female, I suppose. It's a bit hard. To, I mean, how do you do this? So I thought about this. While watching, I think, some of the programs, and, and a, a thought a thought occurred to me: Is Professor Brian Cox thoroughly rootable? And you know who I mean, don't you? Is he? So, I conducted some science on this uh, using Twitter, of course. So the poll went up: Is Professor Brian Cox thoroughly rootable? Um, and amazingly, it's a line ball. Forty-three percent of you said yes, obviously first. 43% of you went, nah. 14% went, maybe. I mean, they, admittedly, they're your options, but there were 128 people voting in this, so that's pretty damn conclusive. So my question, though, is after posting this, I was told that his wife, Brian Cox's wife, is a TERF, that is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, uh, who is uh, that style of feminist, which is a thing now that... that thinks that trans women are not really women and therefore should not be part of the feminist um, dialogue, etc. Uh, so, you know, they're cunts, basically. So, Brian Cox has said some things that are a bit turfish. So, I've been meaning to do a second poll just under the things. Yeah, sure, okay, he, he is a prick, but would you still do him? And, you know, this comes down to the whole concept of hate fucking, doesn't it? And I won't tell you um, what Snarky Platypus said the other day, um, because quite frankly, he's sitting not far away as I record this, and and he'll ah oh, fuck it, he'd he'd hate fuck Andrew Hasty. That's what he said. Um, so there you know. Would you? Would you? Maybe that's a poll we need to have. So that was about the sex walrus, because obviously. Um, but in this, some people said I should look up what walrus sex is, uh, and the because uh, <laughs> you know, is your curiosity piqued? Walrus sex is when you lose rhythm when having sex, and it's like just two walrus bodies slapping together, sort of. <laughs> walrus sex, you heard it here. Aidan Estelle, 
uh, tweeted the other day something which shows us that artificial intelligence will definitely not uh, take over the world. Uh, he writes, this is 1,000% exactly not the information I wanted from Siri. He was looking for a waffle iron, so typed into Siri, waffle iron. Seems fair enough. Siri said, two milligrams. That's how much iron is in a waffle per standard four-inch square waffle, including frozen waffles, from the US, uh, the USDA, what's the Department of Agriculture. So a waffle contains two milligrams of iron per bit. Even the regular intelligence uh, is something that won't, really uh, trouble us anytime soon. The magnificent Australian uh, commentator, Rowan Dean. Uh, yeah, don't turn off Rowan Dean. It's all right. He's editor of The Spectator, which is kind of a, a right-wing group blog magazine. He writes columns for the Australian Financial Review and the Courier-Mail, the latter being the um, Brisbane News Corp paper. And he commentates on politics uh, for Sky News, and uh, this is how he started one of his rants. I'm going to play the whole rant. It's about five minutes, but it is worth it, as you'll hear. The United Nations. I have long said we should have as little to do with this sinister socialist authoritarian mob as we possibly can. Not content with trying to ruin our economy with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which Malcolm Turnbull and Julie Bishop idiotically ratified. Not content with destroying our free speech through all the ghastly Trigg-style UN Human Rights Agreements. Not content with trying to steal our money and redistribute it to the third world under the fraudulent claim of rising sea levels. Now, that's not a production mistake by me. Mid-rant, they just suddenly dropped into this clip. Uh, as you hear, there is a music of Middle Eastern appearance just there. The clip shows some Palestinian... Well, it's alleged to show some Palestinian school kids acting out uh, some sort of play in which Israeli soldiers are causing them grief and they're fighting, fighting back. For some reason, this was very badly dropped into Rowan Dean's rant. Uh, and, excuse me, uh, and uh, there are some other bits where he stumbles in this. But anyway, uh, it continues. And not content with that, the UN Relief and Works Agency pumping our generous taxpayers' dollars overseas aid to radical Palestinian groups teaching Arab kindergarten kiddies how to murder Jews. Not content with patronisingly lecturing us about the Great Barrier Reef or our Indigenous Affairs policies or condescendingly sneering at us about our successful border security policies. No, not content with all of that interference with our rights as a free and sovereign nation. Now we learn that the United Nations will dictate to Sydney Siders how much drinking water we can have and tell our newest airport over which houses our aeroplanes will fly. 
According to an article in yesterday's Weekend Australian, written by top science journalist Graham Lloyd, who we had on this show last year, the United Nations, the world's greatest collection under one roof of moralising busybodies and pontificating hypocrites, is now sticking its noses into how high the wall can be at Warragamba Dam and what the flight paths at Badgerys Creek should be. And the Morrison government is letting them get away with it. According to Lloyd, a UN committee, including members from China, Cuba, Uganda, Indonesia and Burkina Faso will oversee key decisions on Sydney's future water supply, flood mitigation and flight paths from our new international airport. Why? Because we made the Blue Mountains a UN World Heritage Site, giving unelected officials from the UN a say over anything that happens to impact the entire area. Remember a couple of weeks ago I mentioned highly paid Canberra bureaucrats were being interrogated at the Bonn climate change fiasco about Australia's gender and indigenous policies on climate change. Well, <laughs> this week you and I paid again through the nose, wait for it, for a nine-member delegation of senior bureaucrats as well as a six-person Indigenous delegation, no doubt all flying up the pointy end, to swan around, of all places, Baku in Azerbaijan at a UN World Heritage Conference where the UN committee expressed their concern. Uh-oh about proposals to raise the heights of the Warragamba Dam and the flight paths at Badgeries. There you go. Sydney's supposed to be growing bigger. Yet the UN wants more and more refugees to pour in. On the one hand, they want us to sign the Global Compact or whatever. Thankfully, we didn't. But at the same time, they don't want us to have enough water for everybody who's coming here. The timid politicians quiver in their first class complimentary moccasins every time the UN raises an eyebrow. According to Lloyd, Australia has agreed to give UN World Heritage Committee members full details of the environmental impact of a planned increase in the height of our dam. And final decision will be made under their auspices. The committee has also requested final flight path data for the new airport to ensure there is no impact. Which translates as suburban northwest Sydney, you'd better batten down the hatches and get ready for jumbos screaming straight over your backyards, courtesy of the United Nations protecting the Blue Mountains. And naturally, these overpaid pontificating poobars of the UN represent some of the worst polluting nations on Earth. The madness has to stop. In the same way, the quiet Britons are fighting to free themselves from the socialist stranglehold of the EU. How long will it be before we quiet Australians realise our sovereign independence is constantly being squeezed by the authoritarian tentacles of the United Nations? Authoritarian tentacles. Gotta love him. He's insane, isn't he? I mean... I mean... He's either a complete fraud making this shit up or he's deranged. Would you like to hear about an exploding duck? Yeah, good. 
this is uh, look. I've linked to the thing. I'm not quite sure when this story when this story is from, but it comes from geographically Des Moines, Iowa. Duck explodes, puts out eye. Says the headline. Uh, the duck's name was Radamanthus. Was the prize fowl of Hawkeye State? Oh, the prize fowl of the Hawkeye State. This is that oh, strange American thing. Okay, fuck this up. The strangest accident recorded in local history occurred here when Rathamanthus, a duck which had taken prizes at the recent Iowa poultry show, exploded into several hundred pieces, one of which struck Silas Perkins in the eye, destroying his sight. The cause of Rathamanthus's untimely explosion was a pan of yeast. This, standing upon Perkins' back porch, tempted the duck, which gobbled it all up. Upon returning from church, Mr. Perkins discovered his prized duck in a loggy condition. Loggy condition? I don't know what that is. Telltale marks around the pan of yeast gave him a clue to the trouble. He was about to pick up the bird when it exploded with a loud report and Perkins ran into the house holding both hands over one eye. Silas Perkins, it's a sad story. Watch out. Your duck may explode. I'll finish this podcast, this irregular podcast, this irregular I'm coming down with a a cold podcast, by playing an important observation about Donald Trump from Fox and Friends. Donald Trump has so much energy. One of the things that they've been talking about is is, is uh, Joe Biden not just being a gaff machine, but really not having the stamina to keep up. I mean, Donald Trump can outwork anyone, and he's, I think, the only president who actually starts to look younger in office. Like, I, most of them get aged. Look, and weird, weird. It's kind of weird, isn't it? With, it's with weird. Biden, they're like yes. saying, Biden, Joe, you need to only do things in the morning. You can't yes, do things I know. in the afternoon and night. I know. I know. I can't do this squeak. No, I can't do this squeak. Good night. Yes, that's all the edict for now. If you want to make this happen more, go to stillgurion.com slash tip or skank.com.au slash subscribe. The next episode of this podcast will be when I get around to it. Until then, I'm Stillgurion. Good night. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry. Nick at Night presents Sing Along with Bob Down. It's time to sing the theme to Fireball XL5. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball XL5. We all in space together, conquerors of the sky. And my heart would be a fireball. Would be a fireball, a fireball. You will be my.
Fireball XL5, one of the feel-good TV shows on Nick at Night.